Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm a senior lecturer at Macquarie University, and I'm coming to you from Sydney, Australia. And I have the immense pleasure of speaking today with Stephanie Convery, who is an author and an inequality reporter for Guardian Australia. And Stephanie is the author of just a fantastic uh, book that I had the pleasure to read a little while ago, and I'm really excited to speak to you about today, Stephanie. The book is After the Count, The Death of Davy Brown. It's out with Penguin in 2020. Uh, Stephanie, I really loved uh, reading this book, and I just wanted to know, first of all, how you came up with this project. Thank you. Um, it's really nice to be uh, speaking to you finally. I know we've been talking about this for a long time, so I'm really glad to be talking to you about um about this book with you keith um so i mean the start of the the start of the project is a little bit um convoluted and i'm going to go into a little bit of an anecdote if that's all right with you Um, absolutely yeah so i i used to i lived in melbourne when i was first um sort of when i first started thinking about this as a as a an issue as boxing as a boxing as a sport but also the um the complications of a sport that is essentially violent was controlled and and um and scored and all of that it's all violence even though it is a sport so um I actually got into boxing before I got into thinking about boxing um because I had a bum knee from trying to run a marathon so I I had signed up for some reason for a, a marathon on the, on the Great Wall of China I um I thought if I'm going to run a marathon, it's probably going to be the only time in my life that I will do this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not somebody who naturally finds running fun. I do it because I, I think, you know, the adrenaline is good. And sometimes you feel a bit great while you're doing it, but I, it's, it's very good exercise. And so that's why I was doing it. Um, but I like having a goal and I thought, okay, well, I'll stretch myself because I also have a tendency to try to do that. Um, if I'm going to run a marathon, I'm going to do it somewhere cool. I'll do it on the Great Wall of China. 
there was there was a group that that runs these adventure marathons, and one of them was in China. In China. So I signed up for that, and then about three weeks before the marathon, um, look, in all honesty, I hadn't been stretching properly. This is a <laughs> um something that everybody should be doing when they're trying to run a marathon is stretch after you train. But I wasn't doing that, and I stuffed my knee. I still ran. I still went to China. I still ran, but I only ran half half a marathon, not a full marathon. Um, and then after I came back, I had to do a whole lot of rehab and my physio told me that I couldn't do any cardio unless I wanted to swim or the only, only other thing that I could potentially do while I was rehabbing my knee was box. And I think she probably meant like just going to the local kind of mainstream gym and doing a class with a personal trainer or something. But of course I was like, oh no, I'm okay. I'm going to go start boxing now. And I went into this, um, dingy gym in, in central Melbourne under the train station um and sort of signed up for for boxing and that was that was my first introduction into it and it was such an exhilarating unexpected um high training as a boxer that I got really fascinated by it and while I was training I think it had been about maybe a year and a half after I started training I was thinking about sport more generally and the politics of the body and was trying to work on a creative project a writing project just didn't like I wasn't working at the Guardian at the time I was doing um working in arts arts and culture literary magazines I was the um deputy editor of Overland Literary Magazine here and um so I was thinking about I was thinking about art I was thinking about the body I was thinking about politics I was thinking about feminism and Marxism and all those different kinds of isms that that can intersect with body politics and trying to come up with something to write about that um and then my partner sent me a link to a news article about a boxer who had just died in Sydney and I thought oh this is kind of this is really this, this is really well this is really awful for a start but also this is kind of the epitome of why like people don't like boxing and I I enjoy it but I also understand that it's it's violent and it can be really confronting and it can lead to people being killed and I thought, well, maybe I could investigate this a little bit. So I sent off a bunch of emails. I tried to call people who might have been involved or related to the incident, and I got nothing, absolutely nothing. Um, and the project kind of faded away. And then I got this job in Sydney working for The Guardian. And so I was on the culture desk, so I was doing arts and um, and reviews and features in culture, the culture space, not at all in sport. And I moved to Sydney for that job. And then the week that I moved to Sydney, I got a message from the boxer's wife. And she said, it was about nine months later, seven, nine months later. And she said, if you'd still like to do a story, I'd be happy to help. And that was sort of where it started. And where where it ended is this whole book just devoted to this, this particular issue and this particular event. That was a very long way of telling you about how this book started. No, but it's, uh, it's fat. I mean, honestly, I find it fascinating to hear one of the things I love about doing the podcast is hearing how people come up with their projects and how they get to things. And it's very often some of the best work comes through these circuitous pathways. And, and I think you can feel it in your book actually, because it, it, your book's not a straightforward kind of investigative account of this. It actually incorporates a lot of your personal history, uh, as well as the history of boxing, um, especially boxing in Australia more writ large. So when I'm reading it, I'm reading kind of investigative journalism. I'm reading history. I'm reading memoir. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about 
when you're when you're writing this project, how you're putting it together, how did you want to situate it in terms of genre and uh, just as a writing challenge and as a as a fascinating kind of um, approach to talking about boxing? Um, I think as I was researching the book, so Danny's Danny Brown's wife, Amy, um, the first day that I met her, she showed me the video of Danny's fight which at that time I knew that no other journalist had seen because I'd read all the coverage and I had um, kind of been making notes about what had happened. And at that point, when I first met her, I didn't know that I would be writing a book about Davey. It wasn't until I saw the video and I saw what happened to the video. And I don't want to kind of ruin it for anybody who might want to read the book because I did try to put a few like cliffhangers and reveals in there. about. I mean, if you'd read the news coverage, you would know what happened. And there was quite a lot of it, particularly around the inquest that later happened. But um, at that time, no, nobody in the media had seen the video of the fight. In fact, I don't even know if many people even knew it existed. Um, I knew that often fights were taped, but I didn't necessarily think at the time that, that she would have a copy of the tape. Um, the police obviously had a copy of the tape, but um, I, didn't, I didn't think that she would. And while watching it, because, of, because I had not been there, I'd only been relying on media reports. Watching it, I had this sudden sense. There's a sense that you get as a journalist, and I didn't realize that it was kind of a journalist sense at the time. I was a, be- I, I am a, I'm an accidental journalist. I started out as a creative writer. My st- I studied creative writing. I wanted to write fiction. Um, and I want, I was always in the arts. I wasn't, I wasn't in news per se. So, I didn't realize this was a, a journalist thing. But that there's this like rush of adrenaline that you get when you realize you have something that nobody else has. When, and when you realize something bigger has happened than you thought or that you found something bigger than you thought. And that's what happened in that room. I remember leaving leaving Amy's house afterwards thinking, my God, this is huge. Like there are so many failures in this, this, this event, so many points where this didn't have to be the outcome, so many points where it could have been stopped if people had done something differently, people had seen things that we could see in hindsight were so clear Um in 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 the course of the fight this did he didn't have to he didn't have to die um it was like i, I believed 100 percent at that moment that this was a preventable death and that, that that there was there were a whole bunch of failures that had happened and then and i knew that i had something that was worth something bigger than just what i had sort of envis- envisaged it might be earlier in the process of like a, a chapter in a bigger book about all different kinds of sports i'm like no this is the story and at the time, the, in- the inquest into Davy's death hadn't happened. The police hadn't even finished their investigation, I don't think. Um, those things take forever. Uh, anybody who's been involved in courtrooms, courts, the processes of courts in Australia, regardless of whether they're um, criminal or otherwise, like they take a long time. Um, and it was scheduled for May the following year. So in some ways, it was sort of perfect timing because I had all of this, I had this information that nobody else had, and I had all this time to kind of build up to it. Your, your question was about genre. So after that point, when I decided that I was going to write a book about this incident um, and with Amy's help had access to a lot of things that, that I didn't otherwise expect, including later on the, the coronial documents, um, which were incredibly, incredibly useful. Um, I thought, so I, I, I thought narrative nonfiction was probably the way to go. It needed to be a story. I didn't want to do an academic Invest, like an academic kind of analysis of it. It wasn't, it wasn't a biography, because it wasn't Davies. Even though Davies' life was sort of important 
to to build an understanding of him. Actually, what happened to him and how he died was the kind of crux of the issue. And I had been one of the things that I read when I am um, stressed or tired or whatever is um, detective novels, and I watch a lot of crime fiction. <laughs> This is, every, this is every academic secret vice is crime novels. I swear to you. Honestly, crime novels and Georgette higher romances, but the romances didn't come into this one. It was the crime novel, sorry, the, the detective novels specifically, and um, and I watch a lot of crime drama. So I I am very attuned to the beat, the narrative beats of a crime novel, the narrative beats of a crime of crime TV. I love it. I don't. I love it. And I thought, why? Well, this actually like could fit that shape, and not only could it fit that shape in terms of, like I'm investigating this thing that has happened. I don't know what I think about it yet, other than that it was horrific and um, shouldn't have happened. But there are all of these characters. There's a natural kind of narrative arc in um, my learning about what happened, going to the inquest, kind of trying to speak to different people, trying to come to an understanding. But there's also this all of this like rich history about boxing and as a sport, as a kind of always slightly seedy and underground culture, um, incredibly masculine and male dominated. And I'm a woman, so there's a perfect kind of narrative tension there. Just thinking about this entirely as a um, as a literary project, quite apart from the fact that I had like personal investment in that, <laughs> um, what it's like to be a, a woman boxer. Um, and and all of those things, all of those things kind of created a nice little um, natural structure for for the book. And even to that, I felt I thought, okay, well, I can I can insert what I have learned about about the sport, about the history, about violence. Um, and I think that's the other thing. There's there's a natural issue. There are natural issues in that. Um, in, in the in in boxing as a subject in this particular incident. Um, so interrogating that and being able to bring in kind of, it's a, it's a kind of, it's, it's a bit on the sad fact that if you have done a bit of reading, you've done a bit of academic reading, you've done a bit of sort of wider reading more generally, if you can bring in some of that into a sort of um, popularly accessible nonfiction book, it just adds weight that often isn't there in, in some other um some other some other non-fiction so i wanted to be able to bring in that stuff like i you know i read shikari i read mark i had ideas about this um my partner and i my partner is also a, a writer and a and a researcher and he and i would just like talk about this all the time like, what does it mean to be engaged in a sport that is basically violence is it how is it different to something like australian rules football or um rugby or or I don't know ballet. Like how how is it different? How is it similar? What are we kind of drawing on when we when we play those sports or do those physical activities? What does it mean to be both empowered by it and realize that you're hurting someone else at the same time? Um, and can you consent to being hurt? Can you consent to a to a circumstance in which you are going to be physically impaired as a consequence of or possibly as a consequence of doing it? And then there was the other the other key issue that was coming up all the time at the time and still is was concussion in sport and the the Australian media at the time kind of hadn't really started pushing on that in the way that I think they had in the US so um the NFL had already um 
settled, I think, that, that major case um, that the that former players had brought against them. I think it's a current player. I can't remember. Um, but they had a whole lot of big players. Yeah, yeah. Former players. Yeah. Well, so there are a whole lot of big moves that yeah. happened there. Do you want to? Well, I, I wanted to add in too, because uh, not every, I've, I've read the book, but people who are listening uh, probably won't necessarily have read the book. But I mean, I could have imagined, one of the things I loved about the book is you could have just done like that kind of parallelism between the academic study and then the the events and the academic study, you know, but you also overlaid your own history into it. So when you're talking about, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead too far or reveal things you don't necessarily uh, want to reveal the book, but um, like you also, you alternate again with chapters of your own experiences as a boxer kind of as you're doing the project so you're learning kind of you know as you're reading Foucault but then you're punching somebody in the face forgetting <laughs> forgetting yeah. this just uh, so I wondered um you know how how you know so yes of course you have the you the there's a there's a extensive bibliography you know of, of academic sources but I also think you learned a lot and I learned a lot from reading about your experiences as a boxer and how you were kind of, because sometimes it felt like you were working through academic texts to understand pain and violence. And other times you were like dealing with pain and <laughs> violence <laughs> in an entirely different way. And so I guess, can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, when did you realize your own life was part of this, was part of the story you were trying to tell, I guess? I think um it sort of became obvious that that was going to need to be in there. Um, because part of the way that I was starting to understand sport was through my own experiences. And and I wanted to be able to tell the reader who I thought would probably not, might be interested in the idea of boxing, but actually think it was kind of abhorrent or um, or be against it. And I, I wanted to have those readers come along with me as a as a writer, um, even though they might disagree with, with the sport more generally. Um, because that is a really, that is a real thing, right? Like there are a lot of people who think boxing shouldn't exist and that's fine. Um, I don't necessarily agree with them when it comes to that or what should be done about it, but, um, I wanted them to want to be able to read the book too. Um, and I thought my story, the story is not, the book is not about me per se. Um, my story is subordinate. I always wanted my story to be subordinate to David Brown's story. If I was in there. It had to just be as a vehicle for people to understand Davy and the issues more in, in, a, in a way that they wouldn't necessarily be able to do that if I wasn't in there. Like I had to add to the story, not um, but not make it all about me. So that that comes through, by the way, very clear. Oh, like, great! Oh, that <laughs> that comes through. No, it doesn't read. It doesn't read like um, it doesn't read. It doesn't read as a like as a memoir first, but it does add. And I think there's a great history of this actually in boxing. Where scholars yeah, kind of take on, where they're like, I kind of really understand fighting unless I unless I do it. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. I mean, I'm not Norman Mailer, and I and I don't say that in the thing in like because yeah. I think he is amazing. But like, he made that he made he made the fight all about himself, and I didn't want I didn't want to do that. Um. So, but I also I also think that there is something about about boxing and about a sport like that that is so adrenaline fueled and um and so kind of uh exhilarating and also terrifying that you have to understand in your body and and you have to be able to describe about our, our physical experience and so the, really the only way to do that is to do it yourself 
you can listen to you can listen to fighters describe it you can you know but i thought like honestly the best way to do that is by by talking about how it actually feels because that's how i that's how i understood why people do it um why why davy brown like kept going back into the ring like why why all those why all those sports people who have been injured time and time again who maybe like have lost it just you know 20 fights in a row and still keep going back why do they do that they do that because of the way it feels not not only that sometimes there's money involved and all sorts of other kinds of things but but i really think at the bottom of it is how it feels in your body and um and i think that that being able to talk about that from my own perspective also because i'm a woman and being a woman in those very bloking spaces and can and can they can be really intimidating and quite scary sometimes but as spaces um puts a different spin on it because boxing has always been considered a man's sport and while there are women who do it and do it very well and that has kind of changing um i think that gender dynamic is is a really kind of key thing to understand about about the sport and about sporting environments and about the, and about the way that it, that it feels in your body too because i think it does i think it does change the kind of narrative a little bit when we talk about the way women feel when we box i mean it's it's pretty much the same like the same the same hormones the same kind of it's still adrenaline it's still like you're still punching someone else it's the same act it's the same um feeling but because the social structures around us are different it can kind of mean something different for a woman to be boxing and for how that feels for a woman to have that kind of power in her body that means something different socially too so those sorts of things I think were much easier kind of explored if I was in there a bit as well um and again like not to not to overshadow Daisy's story but to kind of add to this sort of layer of understand layer the layers of understanding I was trying to build in the reader about to ultimately get to the point of like why does it matter the circumstances in which this guy died and the things that other people around him could have done why does that matter and how can we change it if, if things went wrong yeah i that that really comes through and i don't want to jump too far ahead but one of the things that i was thinking about at the end of the book was kind of the future of boxing but also the possibilities of kind of a feminist future of boxing that was different um than what boxing is now and what I mean when I say feminist future boxing is not like a boxing just for women, but like a, a boxing that is about um, a kind of more feminist understanding of what sport might be and how that was working for you. But look, I, I, I take your point. You've mentioned it twice. So I think I think we should move there and actually centered uh, Davey now in the conversation a bit. And so maybe you can tell us a bit about who Davey Brown was and, and a bit about what happened to him. I mean, as you mentioned, it's not, it's not a biography. It's not the life and death of Davy Brown. This is after the count, the death of Davy Brown. So can tell us just a little bit about who he is and what happened to him. So Davy Brown was a 20-something boxer in Sydney. He was a professional. Um, he'd been fighting since he was a kid. So his father was into boxing. He got uh, Davy and his brother Tommy into boxing when they were about 10 or 11. Um, and... And Davey was really good at it. In fact, they both were. They were both professionals eventually. Um, uh, so he fought all, he had hundreds and hundreds of fights when he was under under 18. By the time he turned 18, he was pretty much ready to go as a pro. Um, and so he he started he started having professional fights in his um after he turned 18. And I mean, you know, as in Australia, 
um, professional sites are generally not very well paid. They're a couple of thousand dollars if you're lucky. Um, so he was working as a, a laborer as well. He had a young wife, Amy, um, and two boys, two, two young boys. Uh, so he was a bit of a family man. He was, um, they lived, you know, out in Campbelltown in the outer, outer suburbs of Sydney. Um, he grew up out there. Uh, so, so Davey came to this particular site, um, with a kind of eye on hoping, he was hoping to get a world title eventually. And this, um, the, oh my gosh, what was the title, the name of the title, the title of the fight? It was the IBF one moment, please. <laughs> Sorry, it's been a while since I'm. There, there's so different uh, titles in boxing sometimes it's hard. Oh, uh, one of, one of my, um, uh, one of the guys I know who writes about boxing a lot um, calls it the alphabet soup of um, of boxing. So I think it's like IBF Pan Pacific something. Yeah. See, I mean, um, he was hoping to get an eventual uh, bid for a title bout, and that's right. Yeah. So, with, with apologies to your listeners, I um I wrote this. I finished writing this book three years ago. for a little while. I couldn't tell you what um, I wrote this morning, so that you're doing quite well. He wanted, he was, this was a sort of stepping stone title, basically. And um, the idea was if you get a few of these sort of stepping stone titles, um, you are more likely to be a contender for something really big. And the really big ones come with more money, they come with more prestige, they come with, you know, glory, etc. Um, so he was fighting a Filipino guy, uh, Carlo Magali, who was brought over from the Philippines specifically for this fight. Um, and the kind of general understanding was that um, Davey was a short thing. He was really good. The um, I don't think this was ever explicit. I mean, maybe it was explicitly stated in the inquest, but um, again, the general understanding was that the that his opponent had been chosen not because he would be a knockout, like a, 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 a pushover, sorry, but because he would give a good fight, but Davey would win. Like this sort of. Um, this is how boxing works. Right? Yeah. This is how boxing works. It is it is it, so corrupt. I'm not not to say that there was like overt corruption here. <laughs> but it is it is generally understood to um be very carefully uh structured so as to give particular people the best opportunity to to move up in their career if that's the idea. So the the fight was actually financed by Davy's father. And the the whole mind was. There was a lot of money that went into it. There were five, I think there were about five fights that happened that night, and Davies was the um, main event. Um, and it was a 12-round bout, as they often are, three minutes around. Um, and Davy was doing pretty well in the first five or six rounds, and then he got this big, he got a big hit in the... It's unclear whether it was the fifth or the sixth round, because the um, various witnesses' testimonies changed. I think it was the sixth. Um, and everyone was like, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit, that's not good. He doesn't look good. He kept, he kept fighting though, and he sort of seemed to come back a bit. And then in the 11th round, he got knocked down um, and he was given an eight count. So that's when, so if you're not familiar with the various... Um, you, need to, you need to explain it. <laughs> you need to explain it. Uh, the, the boxing listeners know what you're talking so, about. Yes. <laughs> no, the, the others don't. So when you get knocked down in boxing, um, when you get that's when you lose your footing and you end up wholly or at least partially on the floor. Um, the referee will come over and they'll count to eight, and that's the eight count. And you have that amount of time to kind of collect yourself and get back up and start fighting, 
or if you stay down after the eight count, then you lose. So he got up. Uh, he used pretty much almost all of the eight to kind of to stay down and go like it's kind of like a breather in some ways. But um, and then he got up and then he kept fighting, and then he got hit again very soon after that and fell back against the ropes of um of the ring. And then the bell rang. He went back to his corner. And when you when you look at the tape, you can really wait, not the. In fact, it might be still some. There are some bootlegs circulating online, although I don't think they're done that with the permission of the family. So ethically, probably not not a good idea to go and watch it. But there were some news reports later that showed the footage, so it is sort of still out there. Um, he got knocked back against the ring. Sorry, against the ropes, and sort of like wobbled back to his corner. And in the corner, they were really they clearly really worried about him, and they were. Um, pouring water all over him and they were um, like he was sitting there kind of just on his little stool kind of staring out and then the bell rang for the 12th round and Davey didn't get up immediately and the referee got kind of miffed about it because Carlo Magali was out in the middle of the ring and he was ready to fight um, went over, the referee went over to the corner and basically like told his corner to get out of the ring so that the fight could continue Um they had, it later came out in the um, inquest that they had been engaging in some stalling tactics in the corner because they were worried about Davey being able to do, like being able to go forward with the next round and they wanted to give him as much time as possible to recover. Um, they didn't, they, they at the time, I don't think they sort of had the language for what was happening to him, but um, but they were clearly, they clearly knew something was wrong. And Davey came out and he was not, he was not the same fighter he'd been two rounds before. He was sort of, his his guard was loose. He was really sluggish. He was not kind of sharp in his movements or anything like that. And within about 10 seconds, um, Carly Magali knocked him out. And you can see it. I mean, actually, you, you can't see this. I don't think, I think there was a suppression order on this particular part of the tape. But um, Carly Magali's, like Carly Magali's final punch like knocks Davy's head back in this really sharp movement and he just crumples to the ground. Um, and he never regained consciousness after that. He, like the, the fight was immediately called off, obviously. Um, they called an ambulance. Um, there was kind of chaos. Uh, people rushed to him, his, his mother, sorry, his father and his wife and his wife's mother, who was a, a, an emergency room nurse. Um, he went to hospital that night. And was found to have a, a severe subdural hematoma, which is like pretty much like a brain bleed um, that was really putting so much pressure on his brain. They they said he's not going to survive. Um, and three days later, he died. So I think the, the key issue that was interrogated, or one of the key issues that was interrogated in the inquest a couple of years later, sorry, my earphones had to pull out. Um, the key issue that was interrogated in the inquest a couple of years later was what whether whether Davy was concussed, whether everybody in the room that had a position of responsibility towards the fighters on the fight should have recognized that he was concussed, whether they and whether they should have been acted on it and what they should have been what they were responsible for doing and if they did that, if they fulfilled that responsibility. Um, so so Davy's death kind of brought together. For me, as a as a outsider, as a journalist, as a as a boxer, um, as an observer, brought together a lot of issues about the sport, about 
um, how seriously we take things like head injury and concussion, brain injury to be more specific, um, whether we are sufficiently educated as, as sports people about the, the risks of that. Certainly in my experience in boxing, um, nobody ever told me how to identify a concussion. I did that myself. I learned it myself. And I think the only reason, I don't think most people in boxing, I know most people in boxing don't teach themselves how to identify a concussion. Um, in my opinion, it should be something that you're taught as soon as you start playing. Um, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it, so it, it was it was kind of the perfect, again, as a, as a writer, using my writer's brain, my writer's kind of analysis, it was kind of the perfect example, um, the perfect incident to kind of like, to draw out all of these issues and start talking about them. And I mean, it was happening in the media too. Um, people were talking about these issues of the consequence of Davy's death because it was so obviously connected to that. Yeah, we, I don't know if that, did I answer your question? No, you answered it per well, you answered it perfectly and really evocative. Like my skin was tingling a little bit as you're describing it as I'm thinking back to the book because um, maybe it's my historian sense, but it's the, the moment encapsulates so many things that so many issues with the sport of, of boxing, whether it's the venues, whether it's the the promoters, whether it's the the sport itself, or the nature of how the sport uh, plays on our our sensibilities and our sensitivities. I mean, for people who don't, we don't. Your book covers this very well, and for reasons of of uh, <laughs> legal reasons in Australia, we don't have to get into who may or may not have violated any duties of care. Um, if people should read the book to to find full conclusions, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's been very thoroughly legal. Yes, yeah. Um, so we won't we won't do do any of that specifics here. Um, but but the, there's there's over there's layers. I mean, so one of the things you talk about in the book is that you know Davy was winning on the cards, like, and so there is a kind of sense that like you just need to survive one more round. <laughs> And yeah, yeah. On the kind of like masculine sensibility of what boxing is all about, but at the same right. time, endurance, like stamina, like you're you're tough. You're, you're you can you can survive one more round. Like you know, you've done eleven so far. What's a little knock? You know that that I yeah that idea that you um, but if you just sort of tough it out, you'll get the glory. But this, I mean, this one moment does encapsulate all these things. It does encapsulate all these things. And you can, in, as you show in the book, um, you know, some of these things have these long histories, like boxing's association with, with kind of the maybe less salubrious side of organizing sport, um, right? And how, not that there's anything particularly wrong in some ways with club venues or things like that, but it, but because of that, boxing has been kind of shoved to a corner and then poorly regulated because it's not in the limelight until something like this happens. And so without without talking in any specific about any particular person, can you talk, can walk us through a little bit about kind of how the coronial court and, and, and you in, your, in the book kind of deal with the issue of duty of care and what are some of the ways in which kind of duty of care um, needed to be changed or what are the, you know, uh, yeah. thinking about that. Is that a good way of putting that, of, of working that for you? Yeah, I guess, yeah. I mean, duty of care kind of came up, but if you've ever had any um, interactions with 
lawyers talking about duty of care. I think it can be very dry and almost feels like it's divorced from reality sometimes. And um, I think the law, the lawyers dry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lawyers do great and important jobs, but also, <laughs> um, I think like so. What with the way the inquest played out was um, everybody who had an official role at, at the fight was called to give evidence. Um, that included the multiple representatives in the room of the Combat Sports Authority, which is the regulatory authority in New South Wales that oversees boxing. Not every state in Australia has... Um, boxing is not officially regulated by the state in every state in Australia. It only happens in some states. Um, and in New South Wales, it, it does. It is regulated by the government. So there were um, combat sports authority representatives in the room. There were two. Uh, so they they had to give evidence. There were there was a referee, obviously. Um, there were the people who were in Davies' corner. That was that was Davies' trainer, um, Todd Mufflin, and his brother Tommy. Davies' family were called to give evidence, um, as was Amy's mother, Davies' wife's Davies' mother-in-law. Um, because she had had a role and she'd, she'd seen it. She was there. Um, Davy's dad, Davy's mom, uh, Davy's wife, obviously, Amy gave evidence. Uh, there was also a ringside doctor. So the ringside doctor was actually, when the in the, the final round, um, when Davy was knocked out, the ringside doctor was about a metre, two metres away. So the, there was a table where the judges, so they were also called, the um, the the people who were scoring the fight, they were called to give evidence. But in between those two judges, there was the doctor um, watching the fight. A lot of the, a lot of the questioning from the counsel, the sorry, counsel assisting the coroner, and also from essentially from the coroner, um, a lot of the questioning was around what roles and responsibilities they each of those people had, how well they understood those roles and responsibilities, what the government kind of mandated that they should or shouldn't do. Um, and then a lot of questioning about concussion and head injury. And did they, did they know how to identify a concussion? If they did know, when did they learn? Like what kind of, what kind of um, education had they had on that? Um, was there any sort of, were there any structures for that to, to kind of, um, if you to get a refresher on that sort of thing, so so in 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 some ways all of this questioning was quite dry. Um, really, the most the the, the, mo- the part of the the part of the inquest that I found most compelling um, and most upsetting in some way, oh, actually around the other way, it was upsetting um, and also kind of extraordinary was the doctor's evidence. So he was the only um, the only person who had an official role that night who had his own lawyer in the room. Oh, no, that's not true. I'm sorry, the referee also did. Um, but I believe that he had um, he had received legal counsel very late in the game, um, very late in the proceedings, I should say, not the game. Um, they, they, both, they both gave evidence quite late in the proceedings, in the inquest proceedings, and the, doctor, the doctor's tone and attitude towards both boxing and his responsibilities that night was really quite um, off-putting from the point of view of an, an observer, but also, um, also I think the coroner, the coroner, so the coroner openly criticised the doctor in her findings. Um, I'll leave you to read the book if you want to kind of know more about what he said and why it was why it was pretty upsetting. But um, he 
he should have been watching. He should have been able to identify David's concussion. It was really obvious from any book. Like from from me as a as an outsider watching the video, he's wobbling. He was wobbling around. He couldn't he couldn't defend himself properly. All of that was pretty clear signifiers of a concussion. And he didn't do that. And he didn't stop the fight. He didn't he didn't try to call the attention of any um, any of the author- of the other officials to stop the fight. Um, and, and I, and I think that combined my reading of it, and this is my opinion to be clear, I think that combined with his, um, his very dismissive tone on the stand was partly why the, why the referee called, uh, called him out for specific criticism in her finding. Sorry, not the referee, just the referee of the coronial inquest. Why the coroner called him out for, um, for specific criticism in her, in her findings. Um, the point book that deals with the coronial uh, court was fascinating for the ways in which it illuminated how much of the fight game doesn't know what the other half of the fight game is doing. Um, no one even understood what rules they were fighting under. Oh my gosh, and yes. Standing eight, uh, eight count or... Yes, do, do you, yes. Is it a standing eight count or a standard eight count and... yeah. Which rules apply to these particular fights? Like, there's so many kind of tiny little nuances in the fighting the fight rules, depending on who's sanctioning the fight, which which you know organization of the alphabet soup is sanctioning the fight, um, what the what the local the local laws are around um, around the sport and all of that. And yeah, um, when people when people on the stand were asked, um, what what are the rules? Like, do you understand the rule? Do you know the rules? They would sort of say, yeah. But then when they were asked specifics about the rules, they wouldn't know. Right. People had been who had been fighting their whole lives had fought hundreds of fights that didn't know the rules. And yeah. in one group, we can openly, I mean, we can we can both openly criticize this, the state government of New South Wales for not doing a very good job of regulating and effectively kind of working, working as a as an adjunct to the promoters, just kind of, you know, taking their word for it that they know what they're doing and really not as a state entity kind of going, hey, we need to be checking into these until it was far too late for Davey. That's right. I do think so. Most of the most of the coroner's recommendations did center around what the government should do and how they should be regulating the sport. I have to say very little has changed. They did. They did. Oh, he did. Oh, you're surprised. Yeah. Um, they did introduce a thing called Davey's Law, which was accompanied by a big spread in the Daily Telegraph, as you can imagine. Daily Telegraph is a um, it's a tabloid newspaper in New South Wales, in Australia. Um, most interested in boxing as well. Most likely yes, yes. the sport. Yeah. That's right. Um, but the, the, the substance of the changes that they had announced and they had pushed through were very, very minor. Um, and by the time I finished writing this book, um, it was pretty clear that very little war was going to happen on this issue um and, and as, honestly um i do wonder if there would have been more potential for a bit more of kind of a push on that had covid not happened um around the time that this book came out and when nobody was boxing because it's a contact sport and yeah we weren't allowed to be in contact with anybody so it was a bit unfortunate in that way and i think kind of it was lucky in some ways for the government that the heat came off in that respect um, at that time. But obviously there were other things that we were worried about. One of the best parts of the book for me was reading about you boxing and because it presented a kind of alternative possibility for 
boxing in some way. So I wonder, you know, we don't, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, um, Stephanie, but maybe in the last five or so minutes, can you tell us a bit about, um, you know, the future of boxing from your perspective, what you learned, because it seemed like you found boxing to be an, an empowering experience at times, but also a challenging experience. I think the key to my sort of understanding about boxing was understanding violence and what it means to engage in violence from an ethical perspective. Um, and, and, and I sort of came to the understanding in the end that, that, there is no inherent moral quality to violence. It, it is a, that's a consequence of us being human and being able to imbue acts with moral meaning. Um, like we don't. I just want to talk about this. I have a cat. She likes to chase lizards. <laughs> like we don't. We don't condemn her for chasing a lizard and killing a lizard, right? I mean, we see that it is violent and it is. It is. It results in the death of of the other animal, but. Um, there's no kind of inherent moral we we don't we don't well i don't i don't um uh make her morally kind of um responsible for that i, I try not to let her do it but that's my morality kind of playing out there by preventing her from killing this other animal um and there's all actually all sorts of violence because there's a kind of adage that um, violence is bad and, um, we don't, we don't condone violence. You hear it from politicians all the time that, that they don't condone violence. Violence should never be condoned, but actually politicians condone violence all the time. They just don't, they just don't say like at the moment we're what we're witnessing an absolute bombardment of, um, Gaza in the Middle East. And there are so many politicians saying, this is fine. This is, you know, this, uh, the other country has the right to to drop bombs on all of these civilians. That is condoning. That's condoning violence. State, right? The nature of the state is violent. Like we, yes. everyone yep. who wants there to be police is condoning on some level of violence because that's just the na the nature of the way in which the state exercises power. Right. That's right. So I think I think all you need to do is kind of open your eyes to what actually happens in the world, to understand that this is a lie that we tell ourselves that we don't condone violence. So, so what does that mean? I think it means that, that there are circumstances in which we think violence is okay. And that might differ depending on our, where we sit in the power structure, where, um, I mean, capitalism is built on violence, where. <laughs> <laughs> if we keep bring down this, we're just, everything is all the way everything down. But I think, I think what I'm trying to get at and what I was trying to get up in the book yeah. is there is a circ there are circumstances in which engaging with violence in a controlled and consensual way I think consent is really important informed consent is really important informed consent is really important for boxing but by doing that it's also really important if anything you're doing is violent or could be construed as violent um, so engaging in a, in a informed consensual fashion in a controlled fashion can be really empowering because what what the experience of violence does to your body is kind of transformative and it, what it does to your mind is kind of transformative it is it is um the most uh it's the most alive you'll ever feel i don't actually know how else to describe it um so so that that is actually kind of i feel like in in some ways that's kind of a dangerous thing to say um and a dangerous position to put forward um and I think that's part of the reason why I spent a whole book trying to to articulate it. Um, 
and it doesn't mean that I think that everybody should go out and um, beat up their friends or whatever. Um, the the control, the consent, is so key to that. But if you have those conditions and they're right, I feel like this can actually be a way to understand yourself better, a way to understand like being what it means to be human better. Because violence is such a key part of of our society and our world. Um, I think understanding it is really important and not just kind of like chucking it in the too hard basket. What I wanted to do in this book was look it right in the face and kind of get and 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 kind of get past all of the sort of social conventions around it to really understand what we're dealing with when we talk about violence and when we engage in violence. Um, and so, like, and as a consequence of that, like, most I would say most most violence is not is not okay, you know. Um, because most violence is not consensual. Most violence is not controlled. Um, most violence is one very powerful person trying to gain more power over other people. Power, that power relationship is also really important, I think. Understanding, understanding power. Um, well, I, yeah. Was, I mean, like, I, I just keep coming back in your book to that moment where you're doing your, it's not kind of your graduation, but you have to fight the three fighters. Yeah. And my black shirt thing, yeah. Your black shirt thing. And you're describing how nervous you are and how, and then you realize these other women are, are who have been training you are nervous of you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's, I think that's also partly, um, partly what we're socialized to be as women, right? To be, a, to be nervous of that. But, um, the way you sort of you're boxing, you're getting over, like you're breaking those ne- negative social, social, you know, if if boxing has negative in- influences in the way it interacts with masculinity, maybe it has positive influences in the way in which it challenges femininity. Right, because I think that what we're we're socialized as women to consider our bodies inferior and weak, um, even if we think, oh, that's kind of crap. That so much of society tells us that that's what our bodies are. And um, and engaging in something like boxing, where you're explicitly using your body as a powerful tool, um, it, and and as one that is potential has the potential to do to other people what everybody tells you that to be blunt that men are going to do to you, like that is that is not just empowering, but it's also it changes the it changes the way you feel about what your body is and and how it can function. Um, it changes the way you walk. It changes the way you you you, you think about um, about things when you enter a room. I think, um, and I mean that interaction between between women can be so it can be so strange in in those environments because it kind of goes against the grain of so much of what we're taught, sort of told about ourselves. Like it's funny because the the women the women that I boxed with always um, were always very nice to each other, but when when we actually got in the ring, we'd really try to hit hard I think I actually wrote about this in the book but every time I got into a sparring kind of training thing with a bloke even if we were just using pads and one of the ideas was to kind of to to dark a punch or to to slip a punch so you know just try to avoid it when it came at your face um they would like they would hold back so they would they would throw the punch but if you didn't move your head they would stop the punch right before your nose and you had to I had to keep saying to these guys I need you to try to punch me. Like I need you to actually, actually try to punch me, or you are not going to teach me anything. And I'm going to go and I'm going to go and train with the girls over on the other side of the room because if you're not trying to hit me, 
like what are we doing here? Like it it was it was funny. Um, the best the best people to train with actually were other women because even though the blokes might have been better fighters, they just treated you like kid gloves. And it was like, no, no, I don't want that. I want you to actually like help me be stronger by um by doing this consent this thing that I am consenting to, right? Like if if this is a consensual environment and we're not going to, we're not going to try to give each other a concussion, but um but we are going to try to to hit each other. I do think that is actually um I do think that is something that that we haven't really spoken very much about but um that is really key to the book is is the is the understanding of concussion the understanding of and and um repeated head trauma causing chronic traumatic encephalopathy which is a degenerative brain disease um I I think that that in sport we haven't for a long time treated brain injury with the seriousness it needs to be treated and that was one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was to to take it seriously and to make an argument for better education of sports people of trainers of everybody in every in every contact sport I now play actually now play Australian rules football um I don't box anymore post-covid I, I play footy and even there like there is more discussion now than there ever has been about concussion and about what it is and how to de- how to deal with it and how dangerous it can be, but it's still an uphill battle to get people to take it seriously, I think. And I really want I really want more people to do that and to take their, their health seriously when they play these sports. Yeah, this uh, one of the things I, uh, I really liked about this book is that meditative quality to it, that it wasn't it wasn't an anti boxing book. It wasn't um just a, a pure account from a boxing kind of like, I don't know, a tragic, a boxing tragic who wanted to talk about some fight in the past. Um, but that it, it, it's a kind of contemporary meditation on what boxing means in Australian society from a female perspective. And it does take seriously these questions of head trauma and, 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 uh, CTI and all, all the, all, uh, CTE, pardon me, and all the other, kind of associated issues that, I mean, it's not, obviously there are other injuries as well that you describe in, in the book, it, you know, just the general trauma that you get from sport, but it doesn't take that. It's not an, and it's not an abolitionist account. It's, it's an account that says, actually, we have to foreground consent. We have to foreground inform, informed consent. And if we do these things, you know, sport can, can should or can still happen in a meaningful way because there are benefits and there are costs, but we just have to have to kind of unshackle ourselves from some of the the kind of to to use the term I guess toxic qualities that masculinity and boxing together can 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 produce. So I I really loved it. Um, Stephanie, the last question I always ask people. Is is what do we have to look forward to next? You're writing all the time, though, <laughs> because you're at the Inequalities uh, <laughs> Journalist <laughs> Guardian Australia. But uh, so I don't. I feel rude asking if there's another book out there. But if there is, if you want to spark anything, that was the time, please. Um, look, I oh, yes, I am writing all the time. Um, you can see my work almost daily. At the, no, not at the moment. I've been off, I've been off work for a little while, but. Um, uh, in terms of long form, I have actually been intermittently, very slowly working on a novel. Um, so, I mean, I did, I, I did train as a creative writer, not a journalist. Um, and so, and, and fiction is my first, my first love. So 
during COVID, I decided that that's what my next thing would be. Something completely different to what I had been doing. Um, don't don't hold your breath on when it's coming out though, because it hasn't it isn't finished. I've got like twenty five thousand words, and it needs a complete restructure. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what I'm working on. Well, I mean, when you're fitting it in between all the amazing writing at the Guardian, it uh, it's impressive. <laughs> and tiring. Yeah, you know, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Stephanie. Thanks so much. We've we've been talking today with Stephanie Convery, who's the author, who's an author and inequality reporter for Guardian Australia, and she's also the author of After the Count: The Death of Davy Brown, out with Penguin in 2020. It's fantastic. Pick up a copy, uh, read it, enjoy it, think about it. Thank you so much, uh, Stephanie, for joining us.